our scripture reading this morning, if you'd like to follow along, we'll be taken from Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Well, good morning. It is good to see you out here this morning in Savannah to worship. We do have visitors with us today, and so we're glad that you're here. This is a great church family. I hope you'll stick around and uh, get to know some folks and be back at every opportunity that you have. Thankful to be together to worship God and to study from His Word today and to think a little bit about freedom, and and so that is what we want to do. It is Memorial Day weekend. It is a weekend... um, Uh, Sometimes it's easy to get caught up and enjoy the idea that it's a three-day weekend and that there's a day off work, but behind that, it's this idea that we stop and remember and we spend time to be thankful for and honor those who have served this country to protect and provide our freedom, some who went and served and gave part of themselves, many who served and gave everything... But because of that, we enjoy a freedom here in our country, one that we need to always remember and to be thankful for. And so as we begin this morning, I want us to think about being blessed by freedom, the freedom that we enjoy as a nation. And of course, we think about that today. We'll think about that some tomorrow. And one way to be thankful is to think about it this way. Imagine waking up tomorrow... And instead of being able to enjoy family and to enjoy the day off and to think about those who've provided our freedom, uh, imagine waking up tomorrow without that freedom. Because when we think about where we'd be without what we have, that can remind us about how our need is great to be thankful. But then also, uh, we just read from Romans chapter 8, the first two verses, it's one place of many in Scripture where we're reminded about the other freedom, the more important freedom, that should also cause us to, to, to just swell up with thanksgiving, the idea that because of being Christians, because of what Jesus did, uh, there's a freedom that we enjoy in Christ. One of the other translations says, so now those who are in Christ Jesus are not judged guilty. Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit has brought that brings life made you free from the law that brings sin and death. In other words, we were enslaved to sin. We had a problem that we couldn't solve. But because of God and His love and Jesus and His obedience and His sacrifice, we now enjoy a freedom that no person, no government, no country, that the only thing God has called us to do, He says, if you hang on and if you don't give up and if you stay with me, the freedom that I provide, it's a freedom that cannot be taken from you. And so for that freedom, we also are thankful. We live in a country where at least for now, for the most part, we're free to obey God. We're not in conflict. We, we can practice our faith. We can live out our Christianity. We live in a country where we're free to do that. I'm, I'm thankful that when we assemble today, we don't have to post guards at the door. We don't have to be very, very concerned about people rushing in and trying to uh, in some way punish us for our worship of God. I'm thankful for that. 
And this freedom that we're enjoying, we sang about that just a moment ago, the freedom that we enjoy is what our founders had in mind, this idea that, that it would be a country that could follow God. And it could stand up and say we're following God. A freedom to do that. I like this time of year because we celebrate Memorial Day and we're thankful for our freedom. And then uh, in, in about a month we'll, we'll stop and we'll celebrate our independence as a nation. And so every day we should be thankful that we're here, that we're uh, privileged to be a part of this country, that we're privileged to be a part of God's family, that we can come together to worship without fear, that we live in a place where most of our laws don't stand in conflict with Scripture. And we're blessed. Even though we all realize that our country probably isn't what it once was. And so in the few minutes we have this morning in part one of this lesson, and yes, this is part one and part two, and so to get part two you'll have to come back next Sunday morning. But in part one this morning, the question that I want to pose and, and kind of drill down into a little bit is to ask the question, as Christians who are blessed, and, and not everybody is blessed because you remember Easter Sunday we began and we prayed for the persecuted church. We prayed for Christians who were meeting in places in the world where they didn't have the freedom that we had. And so with this freedom we have, there's a responsibility. And so the question is, what are we doing with our freedom? And is it possible that we've maybe taken our freedom to follow God and our freedom to practice our, our faith in God freely? Maybe have we, have we possibly taken that for granted? Because you know what happens when we start think, taking things for granted. If I take my time... If I take that for granted. Or maybe you've watched somebody do that and then they get sick. And suddenly they, they, they place a new value on every day because they've maybe had a brush with death. Or, or maybe it's relationships. I take a relationship for granted until I about lose it and then I remember all over again. I need to value that. I wonder if it's possible that maybe we've taken our freedom for granted. And maybe by taking some of these, these privilege for, privileges for granted, perhaps we've allowed certain aspects of our freedom to come under attack. And let me explain what I mean by that. Some who refuse to honor God as God and, and trying to get what they want, they really want, it to, they, they want to make it more difficult for you and for me to obey and properly honor God. And they want to use our government to accomplish this. And it's not that they want an oppressive, mean, third world government that we sometimes see stories about. They don't want that. They just want a country that isn't one nation under God. In other words, they don't want a nation that gets its overall direction and its directive from God Almighty. They don't want a country where a reliance on godly principles is at the foundation of what we pass as law. In other words, where standards of right and wrong are based on what God has defined as being right and wrong. Now, for those of us who are Christians, what we want, we don't want to be in conflict. 
In other words, we want to we be able to follow God. We want to be able to obey Him. And we don't want there to be any conflicts with that. We, we don't want to come to a crossroads where law of the land says X, God has said Y, and now I'm at a place where I've got to choose. Will I follow God or will I follow uh, the law of the land? We don't want to have to make those kinds of choices. And I get it, and you understand it. The law of the land, it's never going to completely line up with what God's Word says. That's not going to happen. That's not realistic. God says drunkenness is sin. Don't get drunk. The, the law of the land, it, it's not against the law for you to be drunk at some point. Now, there are certain laws. You can't do it maybe in public or whatever. Uh, sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship, God says that's wrong. It's always sin. Well, the law of the land doesn't define sex outside of a marriage relationship as being wrong. And so you, you understand that it's never going to completely line up. But what we don't want is conflict. We want to be able to follow this without violating the law of the land. We want to minimize the number of times where we have to make a hard choice. And I say that because I'm not so sure in every case that we do well in making great choices. The conflict that has been generated by some of these laws that have been passed, they, they're, they're, well, let's talk about it this way, they're, because we're beginning to see some of the conflict. Our kids who are in public school, you think about a Christian teacher going in to teach maybe uh, something like Origins. And so the teacher who is a Christian, who's following God, who believes in God the Creator, when, when it's time to teach origins in a public school, the textbook is going to require that teacher to talk about a theory, an unproven theory that defies logic and that has at its very core this idea of evolution, that there's no common sense to it, there's no proof for it, but that's what has to be at least taught. And now, in a lot of places, a, a teacher can say this is an unproven theory, this is one option, but what we typically don't get to do is say, really, there's only two ways it could have happened. Either it's evolution or there's creation. We don't even get to teach both sides. The other thing that we don't always get to do, we sang that battle hymn of the Republic. The battle hymn of the Republic that acknowledges this great faith in God. And yet when you read a, a history book about the founding of our nation that's going to be used in a public school today, you, you're not going to read about the faith of our founding fathers and you're not going to read some of the things that they wrote in their diaries about God and about their reliance on Him. That, that's all been sanitized. It's been cleaned right out of there in way too many cases. And because of that, we're raising up a generation who falsely believed that we were never even intended to be a Christian nation. We're raising up generations that don't understand what really happened. And uh, one example would be you hear people talk about the separation of church and state. And a lot of people who talk about that, they don't understand it. They don't understand its original context. They don't understand what was originally meant by that. They don't understand that somebody took that, picked it up, turned it around 180 degrees, set it down, redefined it, and that's what everybody uses now. And so the questions that we've got to be asking, you know, what are we doing with our freedom? 
And that leads to some other additional questions. As, as some of our freedom, as some tend to take some of that away from us, will we stand strong? Will we stand up? Will we just roll over and give up on trying to stand for the idea that, yes, we're supposed to be a Christian nation? Will we serve God no matter what? Will we continue to preach and teach and obey if eventually we say a day in this country where certain parts of Scripture become unlawful according to the law of the land? Because as we've stated, we've had it pretty easy for, for many, many years. Very, very little conflict. And, and maybe we falsely assume that, hey, we'll always have that freedom. And so it hasn't always been in, in the middle of every decision. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes about what he's living out in this life. And when he writes about things, I'm, I'm afflicted and I'm perplexed and I'm persecuted and I'm struck down. You know, we read that in 2015 as people in this country and that doesn't really resonate with us. Because very, uh, there's not a lot of affliction because of being a Christian. And there's not a lot of persecution and there's not a lot of being struck down. Yet I will say this, recent times haven't been good for our country and our status as one nation under God. State after state, passing laws that say we're going to recognize something that God says is wrong. Talk a lot about same-sex marriage today. In fact, I, I saw just last night there was a headline, another country uh, in, in our world has voted to recognize the idea that people of the same sex, the same gender, can get married to each other. See, God's weighed in. And God says that that's always, and it goes all the way back to the earliest parts of the Bible, it's, it's always wrong. And when you think about something like marriage... If you create something, if you design something, if you own something, you get to decide how it works. And we got the idea of marriage from God. God created marriage and so as the creator of marriage, He gets to decide how marriage is going to operate and He gets to decide who's going to participate in that and He gets to decide how people who are in that relationship should treat one another and He gets to decide how that ends. God owns marriage. And it doesn't mitigate His law. When we pass a law that says it's okay for people of the same gender to get married, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change truth. God always defines truth. Another issue in play here, though, is that connected to this idea that state after state passes laws like these, there are some who would want to make it illegal for me to stand in front of you in a worship assembly where we're practicing freely our religion, there are some who would like to make it illegal for me to even preach the idea that God calls homosexuality sin. They, they'd want to make that, they might want to define that as a hate crime. Make that illegal. Or another way to get to the church is maybe to eventually threaten the tax-exempt status of the church. If you can make it about money, that's when you get people's attention. So, hey, if the church lost its ability to be a tax-free entity, would that cause the church to change what it teaches? That's how some people think. 
And so we need to be concerned, not just because ungodly laws and practices have a negative effect on society, but also because it's another step toward removing God from our culture. And as we talk about these things, these things aren't just in the world. They affect the church also. You remember in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the first four verses, is very familiar stuff. And, and, and preacher, you know, when we're training preachers, we talk about these verses a lot. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. See, when we start talking about these things, when there's enough pressure from society, there are some, even within the church, who will begin to say, well, maybe we don't need to say that's wrong. Maybe we don't need to try to, try to, try to teach what God says in that regard. And yet God still calls us to sound doctrine. Doctrine's good. Doctrine matters. God says, preach the whole counsel of God. And so as the ungodly seek to take our freedom away, there may come a time, and we maybe never could have imagined it, but there might come a time where we might have to break the law of the land in order to obey the law of God. Of God, And the question is, would we have the courage to do that? Would we have the courage that we were praying about for those people in other countries who are living as the persecuted church? Go with me to Acts chapter 5 for just a moment. The church is new and it's on fire with growth and all these great things are happening. And so... The government gets upset. The church, religious leaders, I guess is the better way to say it, they get kind of upset because they see what's going on with the church. And so they have Peter and, uh, they have Peter and some of the apostles thrown in jail. And so when you get to verse 23, well, more backstory, they're thrown in jail. Middle of the night, angel of the Lord shows up, releases Peter from prison and the guys that are with him, and he says, listen, I want you to go back over to the temple, I want you to go back over there, and I want you to continue to teach, and I want you to continue to preach. And so Peter and they, they go back over there, they're about daybreak, they're in the temple, they're starting to teach. And so verse 23 says, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. So they're ready to go bring Peter and they're ready to question them and ask them about what they're doing. And they're not in prison anymore. And then where they get a phone call or whatever it is, they get a messenger running. They don't get a phone call, but they get word that, hey, those guys that you arrested yesterday, they're back in the temple and they're preaching and they're teaching again. And so they rearrest them. And he said, I thought we told you not to do that. And verse 27 says, When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, wouldn't that be great? If somebody could look at us and say, You have filled Savannah with your teaching. You filled your whole city with your teaching. That's a compliment right there. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God 
rather than men. Would we be willing to risk prison? Would we be willing to risk life itself? Because that's the kind of faithfulness that God calls us to. And we play into Satan's hands if we're ever convinced that the day could come where we didn't have the freedom to obey God here in our country. Never is a dangerous term. And so we need to constantly pray that the number of times that the laws of our land put us in conflict with Scripture are minimized. We need to pray about that. And I know we need to move quickly, but as we consider the situation... The idea that there are those who would challenge the, the, the principles upon which our nation was founded and who would love to remove our freedom to lawfully obey God, I would say this, I fear sometimes that our inconsistency as Christians may actually be part of our problem. And again, let me explain what I mean by that by asking a question. For, as Christians, do we truly try to hate all kinds of sin? See, that's a a compelling question, isn't it? Because generally, it's not too difficult for us to hate sin that is appalling to us. For most of us, the idea of aborting, uh, murdering an unborn child, a child that just happens to be on the wrong side of a birth canal, that's appalling to us. We can't imagine the idea of taking an innocent life. And so it's, it's not hard for us to be against that. And see, for most people, that's where something like homosexuality falls. We don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to us. And so because we can't see how anybody could enjoy that, it's easy to say, well, I'm against that. It just makes no sense. However, some sin is alluring. Some sin is actually pleasurable. Every sin that tempts us, the reason it tempts us is because we're drawn toward it. And you take something like fornication, the idea of a sexual relationship outside of the marriage relationship. Well, it's, it's kind of hard to hate that one because either we've been there and participated in it or we've been tempted to. And see, when we've been tempted to do something ourselves, it's a lot easier to understand the person who would be tempted to do that. You can, the laundry list, lying, gossip, slander, whatever. But here's the thing to remember. When there's a person practicing something like homosexuality, to them, it's tempting because it's to them pleasurable, it's desirable. And whether I or not, I find it appalling to not. If I forget that, it may prevent a teaching opportunity. And we've got to remember that this stuff's not just out in the world. I've, I've not talked about this in any congregation where somebody didn't come and say, yeah, there's somebody in our church that struggles with this. And one aspect of growing up to look more like Jesus is, is the idea that we've got to learn to hate and despise all types of sin while remembering never, never to hate the sinner. And sometimes that's hard. And sometimes we get that one mixed up. The Lord hates sin. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. That's a broad list. God hates sin. 
Romans 12 verse 9 would be a great goal verse for us. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. How are we doing at hating sin? Because we've got to be very careful to make sure that through what we say, through content that we post, or through the way we act, that a sinful person in no way gets the idea that we despise him or her. Or that somehow I hate their sin, but I don't hate all sin. This sin over here is okay with me, I just hate your sin. Again, it's easy to be more sympathetic with the person who's challenged by the same thing I am. And so we've got to learn to hate sin in all kinds. And then finally, where we get to our conclusion today, it brings us to the next part of this. Can I learn to hate all sin while making sure that I'm honestly trying to love all people? When we truly love people, it'll be more difficult for them to misunderstand us when we stand up and talk about what God says is right. If, if a person knows that I love them, it's going to go a long way to allowing me to say, because I love you and because I love God, I've got to talk about what God says is right. I don't hate you, I love you. And Jesus is always the example, isn't He? I mean, Jesus got this right. Jesus always understood, I, I can't tolerate sin, but I love people. And sometimes when we get involved in things like that, we get it all messed up and people come away believing that we don't love them if we're not careful. I want to leave you with Titus chapter 3 and kind of bring us back to our relationship with government. There in Titus, the beginning of that, it says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And then, and then in verse 2, the first part of this verse, there's this statement that just kind of catches us sometimes. It then says, To malign no one, but to be peaceful, gentle, showing every consideration. To malign no one. I may be led by people who aren't trying to follow God. I may be led by people who aren't trying to live according to Scripture. I may be led by people who I do not agree with in my government. But the Bible says that I malign no one. And sometimes we get that one mixed up, don't we? And I love what the book of Titus goes on and does. It says you don't malign anybody, and then it explains why. And it goes on to say, you know, you once were a sinner, and you once had trouble, and you once were lost, but then God showed up and God saved you, and He didn't save you because you were great, and He didn't save you because you'd done a bunch of things that were righteous. It says He showed up and He saved you out of His love and out of His mercy. And what Titus is doing there is he's reminding us that those people we might be tempted to malign, they need the same thing that God blessed us with. He says, so you malign no one. If we ever choose not to love all people, we're not following the law of God. And I know it's not always easy. We've got to hate sin, but love people. And in the meantime, we would do well to continue to love this nation and pray for this nation because it's, in a lot of ways, it's still the best nation on the face of the planet. 
And we need to be thankful for the people who fought and who've given their lives. We need to be thankful for the people who had the vision to create a, a nation like we enjoy. We've got to continue to love God and be thankful to Him for having blessed us in so many ways. And next week in part two, we'll spend a few minutes talking about some keys to preserving the freedom that we enjoy. Bradley's going to lead us in the song that he selected, and the question of the hour is simply this. Are you truly free? You live in a free country. You're in a room worshiping a God today who provides you with a freedom that can never be taken away. But it is possible that you're here and you're still not free. You could still be here today, still enslaved to sin. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, freedom is right there, it's available, it's ready. All you've got to do is be obedient to what God wants for you. Be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Maybe you're here today and your walk with God isn't what it needs to be. Maybe you need the prayers of your church family. If you have a need, let that be known while we stand and while we sing.